gained uh, media coverage from all across the country. But uh, Simone Biles testified today. And Simone Biles testified to Congress. She said, I blame Larry Nasser, and I also blame the entire system. I blame Larry Nasser, and I also blame the entire system. So it was gripping testimony uh, from uh, all of the women who uh, testified today. And they all expressed regret that uh, this cannot have been stopped before Larry Nasser uh, abused uh, dozens of, of girls and women. Simone Biles and three fellow gymnasts offered gut-wrenching testimony uh, to Congress on Wednesday, September 15th, describing abuse they suffered at the hands of Dr. Larry Nasser, who we know was convicted, uh, and charging the FBI, quote-unquote, turned a blind eye as uh, Larry Nassar molested female patients. Simone Biles blamed U.S. Gymnastics, uh, the U.S. Olympics Committee, and the FBI for the long-running abuse by uh, Dr. Larry Nassar, who molested girls and women athletes under the guise of medical treatments, under the guise of medical treatments. At times, the 24-year-old superstar, uh, Simone Biles, uh, at times her voice quivered, and she tied her mental health difficulties at the Tokyo Olympics this summer directly to the trauma, the, to the trauma of Larry Nasser's abuse. Okay, so we'll talk about uh, uh, this today. We'll talk about the testimony that that happened, um, and then also. As we discussed on our show yesterday, on Tuesday's show, uh, the story broke while we were live on the air Tuesday that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California has won his reelection. I mean, sorry, won the recall, won the recall, this idiotic recall race where you had about 46 uh, GOP challengers at the forefront was unqualified Larry Elder. Okay, who's just a total idiot, Larry Elder, radio talk show host for years. And uh, Governor Gavin Newsom crushed the competition, but he was powered by African-American voters and Latino voters. He was powered by African-American voters and Latino voters. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this. Now, we, we the, the story broke while we were live on the air. After uh, I think it broke after we stopped broadcasting on 19 a.m. Superstation WFDF and we were in overtime on my network on our social media platforms for the African History Network. The story broke. I got the update uh, from the Washington Post. So we talked about it live on the air uh, here yesterday. So we'll discuss this a little bit more today. And uh, people are looking to see, is this foretelling? political futures, political fortunes, or the lack thereof political fortunes for the GOP in the 2022 midterm elections, okay? Because this, the, the win by Gavin Newsom to defeat this recall, this idiotic recall election that was spurred by Republicans, 
this was a repudiation of Trump and Trumpism. This was a resounding repudiation of Trump and Trumpism. So many people are asking, how will this impact the 2022 midterm elections? When usually there's a dip in um, voter turnout, number one, and there's usually definitely a dip in voter turnout for, for Democrats. And also, historically speaking, the party that is in the White House usually loses seats in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate in midterm elections. However, with this mid, with this midterm elections, this is crucial. We can't lose seats in the House or the Senate. We actually need to gain seats in the House and the Senate. And you need to get to uh, hopefully a 60 vote uh, majority, 60 seat majority in the Senate. If you can't get the 60, at least get the 55, 56 so that then you can break the filibuster and change the filibuster rules in the Senate. So we'll discuss that also. Now, September 15th is World Afro Day, World Afro Day. And I've been seeing posts uh, today about World Afro Day. This is the uh, fifth annual World Afro Day. We, we did a post shortly before uh, the show came on today, then a World Afro Day. Be be proud of your hair while World Afro Day is celebrated. Be proud of your hair while World while World Afro Day is celebrated. Okay. And uh, so we'll discuss this as well. And this is celebrated by African-American men and women and celebrating uh, natural hair, celebrating Afros on both African-American men and women. Okay, so we'll discuss some about uh, World Afro Day and recent slights and attacks on uh, natural hair when it comes to uh, people of African descent. Uh, then today, uh, September 15th, this is the 58th anniversary of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing where four little girls were killed in Birmingham, Alabama, okay? And many of us have seen the story. Some of us saw the film from uh, Spike Lee, Four Little Girls, okay? And uh, th there's a piece from, uh, there's, there's a piece from, um, what is that, history.com. Today I read the updates each morning from history.com, this day in history. And there's uh, also an article from, um, I forgot which publication that is. Um, there's an article from uh, ABC Channel, uh, ABC 33, I think it is, uh, ABC affiliate. The fifth little girl re recalls 16th Street Baptist Church bombing 58 years ago, okay? So we'll uh, discuss this as well a little bit in our history segment dealing with the uh, 16th Street uh, Baptist Church bombing. Uh, took place September 15th, 1963. Now this was about three weeks after the March on Washington and which took place August 28th, 1963. There were so many bombings that happened in Birmingham, Alabama that African-Americans called Birmingham, Bombingham. There were so many bombings. And we know that 
in um, uh, also in uh, uh, 1956 during the Montgomery bus boycott. 1956, we know that um, uh, Dr. King's house was firebombed twice in 1956, uh, late January 56 and then also September 56. So it wasn't just in Birmingham that they were doing bombings, but Birmingham was known for bombings that white domestic terrorists were doing to African-Americans. Um, Addie Mae Collins was 14 years old, Cynthia Wesley, 14, Carol Robertson, 14, and Carol Denise McNair were, was 11. These were the four African-American girls killed in the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church uh, bombing. Okay, so we'll talk about that, and then we'll give a, a brief update on the R. Kelly trial. Uh, yesterday, I think yesterday was day 15. We, we didn't talk about it yesterday. I had information prepared for yesterday, but we ran out of time and we didn't uh, get to it. Uh, yesterday, prosecutors uh, played for the jury uh, tapes of R. Kelly allegedly threatening accusers. So we'll talk about this also. Madam Noor has a piece on this. USA Today and uh, what is this? Uh, ABC News have pieces on this uh, from the, the September 14th, but Madam Noor has one from September 15th that we'll talk about. All right, now on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct your own behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you, you can control the circumference of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events and history, politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. To sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Be sure to register for the new 10-week online course that I teach on Saturday, Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Uh, we go through and analyze a little more than 100-year period of history to look and see what happened to us after slavery ended. We look at the Reconstruction Era, Jim Crow, uh, World War One, World War II, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement, Great Migration. And uh, we do the classes 12 noon to 2 p.m. All this, We do the classes live. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Click on register here, and you can start watching class number one as soon as you enroll. The class is on sale for a limited time, only $70, regularly $130. We're coming up on a break here. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black. All positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, 
our story our way. Black TV, the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30 plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network, subscribe now. Hi, I'm Joel Wilson, President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting LLC, a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services. We are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365, and Surface tablets, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses. Take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701. Network show. We deal with current events in history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Unfortunately, many people confuse what racism is. Racism is a power structure. It was laws and policies that put us in this predicament. It's going to be laws and policies that take us out. So we control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts. We control the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do what people really doesn't know. We have it all on 910 AM Superstation. <laughs> 910, the Superstation, Detroit's only African-American talk radio. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. Calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. All right, the um, screening of the documentary Hot P is, uh, which deals with uh, economic empowerment and uh, African civilizations. That documentary screening is coming up Sunday, September 26th, Sunday, September 26th, 3 p.m. at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Uh, I will be there. I am moderating the panel discussion. Uh, this uh, uh, Professor James Small will be there also. Uh, he is in the film. Uh, the film features Dr. Leonard Jeffries, Professor James Small, Dr. Julian Malvo, Dr. Zahi Hawass, uh, Jabari Osazi, and others. Um, this Sunday on our show, we're going to have uh, Dr. Leonard Jeffries and Professor James Small uh, back on our show uh, this Sunday, uh, the African History Network show, to talk about the topic and talk about the screening also. Okay. So, uh, visit the, the visit the website hapifilm.com hapifilm.com for more information and um, I'll be there as well ticket you can purchase tickets from hapifilm.com okay so right before the break we were talking about um, a little bit the testimony that took place today in uh, the, the US Senate testimony that took place today the US in the US Senate from Simone Biles and uh, three of her fellow gymnasts regarding the abuse that they suffered from uh, Dr. Larry Nasser.
Okay. And, you know, it was um, gut-wrenching testimony is emotional testimony. And they talked about the abuse, but they also talked about the fact that in general, um, in general, nobody believed them, which is, which was another thing in general, nobody believed them. Okay. So I want to go to, uh, this clip here. This is from, uh, NBC nightly news, and it deals with, uh, what happened today. And we know that Simone Biles, uh, said, I blame Larry Nasser, and I also blame an entire system. Let's go to clip number one, Shakita, for NBC nightly news. Okay, take it off mute. Blame Larry Nasser. Okay. I also blame. Can you start it from the beginning? An entire system that enabled and to be clear, I blame Larry Nasser, and I also blame an entire system that enabled and perpetrated his abuse. Simone Biles and her three fellow gymnasts told the Senate Judiciary Committee in words searing and emotional how adults failed them, ignoring for more than a year their claims of sexual abuse by Team USA doctor Larry Nasser. I don't want another young gymnast, Olympic athlete, or any individual to experience the horror that I and hundreds of others have endured before, during, and continuing to this day in the week. Of the Larry Nassar abuse. The women particularly blamed the FBI. Michaela Maroney testified in 2015. She told an agent what Nassar did to her in excruciating detail before she told her mother. I began crying at the memory over the phone and there was just dead silence. I was so shocked at the agent's silence and disregard for my trauma. After that minute of silence, he asked, is that all? The FBI didn't officially open an investigation until nearly a year after it first learned of the allegation. The FBI made me feel like my abuse didn't count and it wasn't a big deal. Allie Raisman described how the Bureau's inaction haunted her. It's estimated NASA abused at least 70 gymnasts after the FBI was first told. It was like serving innocent children up to a pedophile on a silver platter. I'm deeply and and profoundly sorry fbi director christopher ray who did not lead the bureau at the time told the committee that the two agents who lied about their actions are no longer with the bureau one took retirement the other was fired the added reforms are already underway we want to take the pain that uh that occurred here Mm -hmm. and use it as a catalyst to teach people the importance of doing the work in the right way. But Maggie Nichols and her fellow gymnasts want more. Maggie, what is justice? I think justice is holding those accountable who failed us continuously and continue to fail us and um, those who did protect us throughout our um, gymnastics career and throughout our childhood. Until someone can answer the question Simone Biles asked, how much is a little girl worth? And this was gut-wrenching to watch. These women are asking for accountability. And so is there any chance any of the FBI agents involved could face charges for making false statements to investigators? There is less. They're lying to the FBI as a crime. But so far, the Justice Department has declined to prosecute the two former agents involved. 
Officials from the Justice Department were invited to today's hearing but declined to attend, and the gymnasts say that makes them feel as if the DOJ doesn't care. Okay. All right, that's from uh, NBC Nightly News from uh, Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. So if we look at this piece here, okay, hold on, the screen is frozen. Uh, if we look at this piece here from, okay, that's from NBC Nightly News, uh, Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. Uh, if we go back and look at this piece here from uh, the Washington Post, um, Let's see, which one is this one here? Uh, I want to look at the one from, uh, okay, the piece from the Washington Post here. Um, Simone Biles to Congress, I blame Larry Nasser and also blame an entire system. Now, it, it, the piece goes on to say uh, that uh, Biles, let's see, um, Biles blame US, USA Gymnastics the U.S. Olympics Committee and the FBI for long running abuse by Dr. Larry Nasser, who molested uh, girl and women athletes under the guise of medical treatments. At times, 24 year old Simone Biles, uh, her voice quivered as she tied her mental health difficulties at the Tokyo Olympics this summer directly to the trauma of Larry Nasser's abuse. She said, I don't want an, I, I don't want another young gymnast, Olympic athlete or any individual to experience the horror that I had that I and hundreds of others have endured before, before, during and continuing to this day in the wake of the Larry Nasser abuse. End quote. Now, Simone Biles told members of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee as she fought back tears Quote, to be clear, I blame Larry Nasser, and I also blame an entire system that enabled and perpetrated his abuse. Okay, so um, now Biles, the world's most accomplished gymnast, won a bronze medal in, in a balance beam at the Olympics this uh, summer, but withdrew from most of the competition, citing mental duress. Now, talking about her training for and participation in the Tokyo Games, she said the scars of this horrific abuse continue to live with all of us. The scars of this horrific abuse continue to live with all of us. Now, Simone Biles said she could think of no place more uncomfortable for her to be than before lawmakers and television cameras in the hearing room testifying publicly about the abuse. And we're talking about sexual abuse. She said she came to the U.S. Senate so that no little girl must endure, so that no little girl must endure what she and her fellow gymnasts did. She said, we have been failed and we deserve answers. It truly feels like the FBI turned a blind eye to us to protect the Olympic and gymnast organizations. Okay, now more than a year after the allegations against uh, Dr. Larry Nasser were first brought to the FBI in 2015, he was arrested and charged by state officials. In the interim, uh, Nasser is estimated to have abused at least 70 more athletes, according to a devastating report issued in July of 2021 by Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz. 
Dr. Larry Nasser's victims say the figure is even higher at 120 victims. Now, Nasser, who treated athletes for both USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University, and people know Detroit is in Michigan State. I know a lot of people that went to Michigan State University, had an ex-girlfriend that graduated from Michigan State University. So when this was exposed here, this hit throughout Michigan, especially here in Detroit, very hard. Larry Nasser, who treated athletes for both USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University, is now serving the equivalent of a life term in federal prison. Okay, uh, read the rest of this piece here from uh, Washington Post. Uh, Simone Biles to Congress. I blame Larry, Larry Nasser. I also blame. Uh, I also blame the system. Okay, I also blame the an entire system. Okay, uh, so we have this piece here from Washington Post. Also, there's a good article as well from uh, NBC News. Uh, this one here from NBC. Uh, NBC News, we have been failed. Simone Biles breaks down in tears recounting uh, Nasser's sexual abuse. Okay, uh, this other piece from uh, NBC News. Let's see here. We have been failed. Let me pull this one up. We have been failed. Simone Biles breaks down in tears recounting Nasser's sexual abuse. Biles and fellow gymnast uh, Michaela Maroney. Ali uh, Raceman and uh, uh, Maggie Nichols testified about their abuse in graphic detail at a hearing on the FBI's mishandling of the Larry Nasser case. Okay, uh, we're going to shift gears here. You'll hear more about that, uh, that story most likely. Um, yesterday, on yesterday's show, the story broke about the California recall election, the idiotic California recall election, and that Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, Democrat, has staved off a uh, recall election spurred by uh, Republicans and those who were upset about uh, COVID restrictions and trying to save people's lives from COVID and different things like this. There were about 46 challengers, 46 uh, Republican challengers. And uh, the front runner was Larry uh, Elder, okay? Black conservative talk show host Larry Elder, who has some very, very backward views on, on many issues, uh, women's rights and um, a whole host of issues, reparations and uh, fighting coronavirus, all types of things. Well, Gavin, uh, the grill.com has a piece on this. And also uh, there's a piece from uh, there's a story on the black news channel. We're going to go to here in just a minute. Uh, well, if you look at the piece here from uh, the grill and uh, yesterday we talked about the story from uh, the Washington post. And I want to see if we can find that piece from the Washington post again. But anyway, uh, this one here from uh, the Grio. Uh, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, beats back GOP-led recall. California Governor Gavin Newsom beats back uh, GOP-led recall. And let's see here. Um, 
so on Tuesday, Gavin Newsom emphatically defeated a recall aimed at kicking him out of office early, a contest the Democrat framed as part of a national battle for his party's value in the face of the coronavirus pandemic and continued threats from Trumpism and continued threats from Trumpism. Now, Gavin Newsom bolted to a quick victory boosted by healthy turnout in the overwhelmingly Democratic state of uh, California. He cast it as a win for his handling of the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic and liberal issues. And it ensures that nations and ensures the nation's most populous state will remain democratic in democratic control as a laboratory for progressive politics. Governor Gavin Newsom said, uh, no is not the only thing that was expressed tonight. No is not the only thing that was expressed tonight. I want to focus on what we said yes to as a state. I want to focus on what we said yes to as a state. We said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to uh, ending the pandemic. Okay, we said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to ending the pandemic. Uh, I wanna go to this clip here from, this is from the Black News Channel. Uh, they, they did a piece on this today and Governor Gavin Newsom's uh, recall election win was powered by the Latino community and the African-American community. California Governor Gavin Newsom was successful in the recall election, which aimed to remove him from office after Republicans expressed displeasure with his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. The African-American community and the Latino communities were heavily involved in Governor Gavin Newsom keeping his job, okay? Uh, let's go to this clip here. This is from Start Your Day with Shan Reed and Mike Hill. You're going to hear uh, BNC correspondent Walter Mo uh, Morris uh, talk with voters in Los Angeles about why it was so important for them to turn out. Let's go to this clip, Shakita. BNC's Walter Morris uh, talk with voters in Los Angeles about why it was so important for them to turn out last night. Down to the wire, California voters casting their ballots in a historic election. For the second time in state history, voters deciding whether they want to recall their governor. We sort of pushed everything into gear with uh, knocking on doors and phone banking and text banking and leaving door knockers. 44% of the early returns that we saw uh, were coming from black voters. We were able to actually make a 10-point swing uh, in what we're now seeing tonight, so we know that the work that we were doing on the front end has paid dividends. Well before this election night, watch parties hosted by AVERICE, the African American Voter Registration, Education, and Participation Project. Tuesday, voters packing the polls. Long line seen at voting centers across the state. It's my civic duty, and it's an honor to be able to participate. Vanessa Chester says she didn't have a choice hand-delivering her ballot to this center in Los Angeles to make sure her vote could be counted as soon as possible. As a black woman, as the daughter of immigrants, as the first person born in America, like, there's a lot that I know my parents sacrificed to get me here, and 
going to do everything I can to make sure that it wasn't in vain. For many black voters, the recall election is about more than who was on the ballot, but bread and butter issues that are big in the blue states like women's rights, criminal justice reform, climate change, and the pandemic. Many telling BNC voting is a right they take seriously. Because so many people have given so much so that we could have the right to do that, it's kind of our obligation to do it. And as the country looks ahead to the next election cycle, Chester has this message for other black and brown voters. We are a powerful group with a lot to say and a ton to give to this country, which we've already done and consistently do over time. And I think that this is a new way for us to show up and show what we have to say and what we have to contribute. And it's so easy to just do it. Vote. Vote, vote. And now that the recall is over, get ready. The rest of the Newsom campaign tell me they believe this is just a preview of what's to come in the midterms. Reporting in Los Angeles, I'm Walter Morris for BN. Oh, all right. All right. Thank you, Shakita. Okay, so we have the uh, recall election here. And we have, you know, one of the reasons why it was so important for people to come out and vote and to uh, crush these uh, Republicans is you're dealing with COVID restrictions put in place to save people's lives. Many of them don't want that. Many of them don't want mass mandates and et cetera. So I guess they just want coronavirus to just go through and just kill people at will. But also uh, Larry Elder said that if he becomes governor, and if something happens to uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, who I think is 85 years old, if she becomes incapacitated or has to resign because of health issues or what have you, he said he would replace her with a Republican. He said he would not hesitate to replace her with a Republican. So what this means is, is that the Senate was flipped 51 Republicans, 49 Democrats, which means that Democrats will lose control of the Senate. Mitch McConnell will become Senate majority leader. Chuck Schumer will become Senate minority leader. Republicans will control the Senate again. They will control which bills come to the floor of Senate debate. They'll be able to block any of President uh, Joe Biden's U.S. Supreme Court nominations or federal judge nominations like they did with President Barack Obama. There were 103 federal judge nominations from President Barack Obama that Mitch McConnell blocked in the Senate when Republicans took back control of the Senate in 2014. And this set it up for, this set it up for um, uh, Donald Trump to get 225 federal, judge, federal judges confirmed uh, in the Senate and we're still dealing with the consequences of that. Those are lifetime appointments. He nominated some of the most incompetent, unqualified federal judges. And the American Bar Association came out against some of those nominations and, and said that these people are totally unqualified to be to, to have a lifetime appointment to sit on, on the federal bench. Also, uh, judges, uh, also, uh, also governors can appoint judges but also governors do things like uh, stays of execution. So there's a lot of power that the governor has and the governor signs bills that come from the state legislature. Well, state legislature in California is dominated by Democrats. The governor signs bills, the governor can veto bills, but the governor also does executive orders. 
So there's a lot of power that governors have. And they said, we don't want any of these idiots, these Republican challengers, to be governor of California. This is too dangerous, especially Larry Elder, especially an idiot like Larry Elder. This is too dangerous. This is too serious. So some people say, well, what does California have to do with me in Detroit? What does California have to do with me in Indiana? You do realize that a governor, if something happens to, just like right now, there's seven Democratic U.S. senators that are in states that have Republican governors. You do realize that if something happens to one of them, that Republican governor can put a Republican in their seat, which really overrules the 2022 election results when it came to the Senate. And, and who people wanted in the Senate, and who people wanted control in the Senate. This is how crucial the position of a governor is. So that when people think, oh, well, that's that crazy governor in that state of Texas, they don't have nothing to do with Michigan. Yes, it does. Or that's that crazy governor in Florida. They don't have nothing to do with Michigan. Yes, it does. All right. So I want to go to this next story here. Um, World Afro Day. World Afro Day is September 15th. I saw some posts on uh, social media about this. There was a good article from uh, Yahoo News that talks about uh, World Afro Day. And it deals with uh, be proud of your hair. Be proud of your hair while World Afro Day is being celebrated. Be proud of your hair while World Afro Day is being celebrated. And we, we hear stories periodically about African-Americans who are uh, face microaggressions, they are uh, attacked, they uh, face uh, discrimination when it comes to jobs, et cetera, based upon, based upon their hair. Uh, if we look at this article here from uh, Yahoo News dealing with uh, uh, Afro uh, World Day, Afro World Day 2021, the fifth anniversary of uh, Afro World Day. And let me pull this up here. So it talks about uh, a British Olympic swimmer has hailed Afro World Day as a great opportunity for black boys and girls to be proud uh, of their hair. Uh, Alice Deering, who became the first black female swimmer to represent uh, Team GB at Great Britain at the Tokyo Olympics, is a special guest at this year's event, sharing her experiences of her Afro hair with school children worldwide, sharing her experiences of her Afro hair with school children worldwide. Now, uh, the 24-year-old told uh, Yahoo News UK, she said, I love wearing my hair natural. I love wearing my natural hair out because it's so beautiful and liberating. I love wearing my natural hair out because it's so beautiful and liberating. Uh, she said, this is me, this is who I am, and I'm really proud of it. I love seeing other women wear their hair 
wear their natural hair out because it always looks so good. Okay. I love seeing other women wear their natural hair out because it always looks so good. And uh, here's a picture here of uh, now Afro World Day was founded by Michelle Deleon. Okay. Uh, here she's pictured with her daughter Estelle at the event for Afro World Day in uh, 2017. Okay, so I, I went to their website today also for Afro World Day. We'll pull that up here in just a minute. Uh, the, the website for Afro World Day, and they have all types of information there supporting uh, and celebrating uh, Afros and natural hair, etc. Now, uh, this year marks the fifth uh, Afro World Day since it was launched in 2017. Uh, World Afro Day founder Michelle Deleon said she was excited and that things have been busy in the lead up to this year's event, okay, which uh, has been endorsed by the UN of United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and received a Global Excellence Award. Now, uh, World Afro Day is an annual event held on September 15th that encourages people to celebrate their Afros and inform others of the social changes caused by having natural Afro hair and inform others about the social changes caused by having natural Afro hair. Uh, Michelle Deleon, Deleon, the founder uh, who lives in London, uh, set up World Afro Day after hearing her daughter singing about her natural hair but this but this event's specific date has historical significance on september 15th 2016 uh the 11th u.s circuit court of appeal upheld the dismissal of employee chastity jones who lost her job because of her dreadlocks okay on september 15th 2016, the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeal upheld the dismissal of employee Chastity Jones, who lost her job because of her dreadlocks. The court ruled that while hairstyles can be, quote unquote, culturally associated with race, end quote, culturally associated with race, they are not immutable physical characteristics. In other words, the ruling says that white people cannot change their race. They can change their hairstyle, which means it is not discriminatory to deny someone a job based on a characteristic they can alter, which means it is not discriminatory to deny someone a job based on a characteristic they can alter. All right. Uh, if we look at this piece here from Yahoo News that talks about Afro World Day, World Afro Day and some of the history behind it, it talks about this uh, court case. Now, once again, power is the uh, uh, politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, found resources and the writing of law, statutes, ordinances, amendments and treaties, their adoption, interpretation and enforcement. 
okay? And this deals with politics, and there's also a politics behind hair. There's also a politics uh, behind hair and hairstyle. On September 15, 2016, the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeal upheld the dismissal of employee Chastity Jones, who lost her job because of her dreadlocks. Now, um, Michelle DeLeon, let's see here. Michelle DeLeon uh, said, it was very critical for me to have a day that mattered. That 15th day of September showed that there are laws against expressing Afro hair in the workplace. That's crazy in the 21st century. I wanted people to understand that this was a real problem that we needed to change. This was a real problem that we needed to change. There was a big hair assembly on uh, uh, on the day involving a live stream of 175,000 young people from 237 schools. Okay, read the rest of this from uh, Yahoo News. Hey, we're gonna squeeze in clip number three about the fifth, uh, uh, fifth little girl uh, dealing with uh, uh, the four little girls. Let's go to this clip, Shakita. Clip number three. 58 years ago today, four Birmingham girls were murdered during the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. Each year, of course, the church holds a program to commemorate that day. And people from across the country came once again to pay their respects. ABC 3340's Ashley Gooden attended this morning's service and joins us now live from 16th Street Baptist Church. Ensley? When those four girls died, it changed lives, laws, and gained worldwide attention. The people who gather here today have a goal. Keep telling the story so no one forgets what happened. You just want to feel safe in church. But I remember on that day, we wouldn't take it all. September 15, 1963, is the day Sarah Collins Rudolph won't ever forget. I never could understand why a person would put a bomb in a church and kill innocent girls. That's one thing I just can't understand. She was there that day. She survived, but she lost her sister, Addie Mae Collins, and three friends, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley. I lost my eye. You know, in the bomb, and my right eye, and I had to uh, really go through life from a child until uh, the age I am now, just seeing out of one eye. When I look in the mirror, I see the stars on my face and see the prosthetic. So that just make me remember what happened here at this church 58 years ago. Every day she thinks about it, and every year on this day, people from across the country come to commemorate it, like Jared Alcantara, who came and brought his Ph.D. student. Because they're, the next, they're teaching the next generation of pastors, preachers, leaders, it was really important to move it from off of the textbook and into real stories, real people, real lives, uh, and also to, to not just think about it, but to feel it, to see it, to be moved by it. Uh, because there's things that you see that you won't unsee as a result of being here. An important day in history, and one Sarah Collins Rudolph hopes others will never forget. These young girls were killed in this church, and this was something that shouldn't have happened. Okay. Sarah Collins. Okay, all right. 
Sarah Collins Rudolph, and that was uh, dealing with the uh, 16th Street uh, Baptist Church bombing. Rest in peace, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. Uh, visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Register for my 10-week online course. We teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Uh, also, we have information there about where I'll be uh, this weekend, uh, Saturday, September 18th, Harris Gentry Park, second annual African Cultural Festival, and then also September 26, 3 p.m., Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, Sunday for the screening and panel discussion of the film Hot P, dealing with economic empowerment and uh, African civilization. Uh, those watching on Facebook and YouTube, keep watching. We're going to keep broadcasting for a few more minutes. Right now, it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We'll count it forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. All right, stand by. Uh, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show uh, as well. We're here six days a week. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, um, pay some of the bills, etc. All right. Let's see. Let's continue here. Now, uh, we're going to go to last story here dealing with R. Kelly. We'll come back to uh, uh, 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in just a second. There's a, a good article from history.com dealing with this day in history. Uh, and it talks about the uh, 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. So we'll go to uh, we'll continue that in just a minute here and go to uh, a recap of what happened uh, with the R. Kelly trial today. Uh, very quickly, uh, I just want to do a quick recap of what we covered in class number one of uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 and 1968. OK, so we dealt with uh, and this was on uh, Saturday, September 11th. As soon as you register, you can watch the full class. We did two hours. OK, here's just a brief recap of what we talked about. We dealt with history leading up to the Civil War taking place. OK, we dealt with history leading up to uh, the Civil War taking place. What caused the Civil War to happen? So we talked about the uh, Louisiana Purchase of 1803, and the U.S. gets uh, 828,000 square miles of land for less than three cents an acre, and it doubles the territory of uh, the U.S. Uh, at the time. This gives more land um, for uh, states to have uh, slaves and grow crops on, and this increases the need for African slaves also. The land had to be sold uh, because uh, France was fighting the Haitian Revolution. They're fighting against the uh, Haitians during the Haitian Revolution, and they're, try they're trying to raise money. Uh, so we also talked about the uh, Mexican-American War of uh, 1865, 1846 to 1848, the Mexican-American War, um, and Texas becoming a state in the Union in uh, 1845, coming into the Union as a slaveholding state. Uh, we talked about the, as a result of the 
Mexican-American War. As a result of that, you, you have what's known as the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ends the Mexican-American War. And the U.S. is going to get um, the territory that makes up six states, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Nevada. The U.S. is going to get all this land because of the uh, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And this is new land to grow crops on and some of the land they're going to have slaves in as well. Um, because of the Mex Mexican-American War and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, this leads to what's known as the Compromise of 1850. The Compromise of 1850 consists of five bills and uh, a lot of that has to do with determining uh, whether slavery will be, whether they're going to have slavery in these new territories or not. We know California comes into the union as a free state, even though they try to ban all African-Americans, but it comes into the union as a free state. Um, but in the Compromise of 1850, you have the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 it, uh, intensifies the abolitionist movement and it causes more runaway slaves to run away into Canada, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And we see this depicted in the film Harriet, okay? The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. So we talked about that. We also talked about the Kansas-Nebraska Act of uh, 1854 and the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 um, left it up to people living in those territories to determine whether or not they would have slavery, as opposed to slavery being dictated by the federal government. Okay, and this infuriated a lot of abolitionists. And this, the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 leads to what's known as Bleeding Kansas. Bleeding Kansas was armed conflict in 1854 and 1855 between pro-slavery groups and anti-slavery groups in Kansas, okay? And they're fighting and killing each other. This is what's known as bleeding Kansas. So th this is uh, just a few of the things we talked about in class number one. And we are looking at some significant events that led up to uh, the Civil War taking place starting April 12, 1861. So in class number two, we'll continue looking at some of those events and then we'll deal with the Civil War, and we'll talk about specifically the last year of the Civil War, 1865, and uh, uh, Special Field Order Number 15, also known as 40 Acres and a Mule, the assassination of Lincoln, the ending of the Civil War, April 9th, uh, 1865, when General Robert E. Lee surrenders to President uh, surrenders to General Ulysses S. Grant, who will later become President Ulysses S. Grant. We also talk about uh, June 10th, June 19th, 1865. Uh, which is right after the Civil War ends, and Major General Gordon Granger delivers General Order Number Three to enslaved Africans there in Texas, and then we also talk about the Thirteenth Amendment, ratified December sixth, eighteen sixty-five, by Georgia, which uh, legally ends slavery, legally ends chattel slavery. All right, so this is a ten-week online course. We go through and analyze a little more than a one hundred-year period of history. We go through. Uh, Civil War, Reconstruction, 1865 to 1877, Jim Crow era. We look at the laws and policies put in place to oppress African-Americans physically as well as politically. Um, and what happened to us after slavery ended to put us in the predicament we're in right now. 
we'll look at uh, World War One, World War Two, uh, some of the massacres that take place. Uh, we'll look at the Tulsa Race Massacre, 1921, Okoy Massacre. Um, 1920 in Florida, Rosewood, January 1923 in Rosewood, Florida. Uh, we'll look at World War One, World War Two, Civil Rights Movement, and Black Power Movement. Okay, so the, the class is discounted right now, seventy dollars for a limited time only, directly uh, one hundred thirty dollars. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch them anytime, even after the ten week class is over. You still have access. You can watch the full course. When you go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, click on register here. It takes you to the next page and uh, just click on enroll uh, on the next page. Okay, click right here on enroll. And as soon as you uh, enroll, you can start watching the content. All right. And you can ask questions in class. We have a live text chat. You can see me. I can't see you. And you can ask questions also. Okay, uh, very quickly here, I want to go back to... Uh, 16th Street Baptist Church and uh, history.com in there this day in history had an article um, dealing with this uh, four black girls killed in Birmingham church bombing four black girls killed in uh, Birmingham uh, church bombing and it talks about what happened September 15 1963 that once again this is about three weeks after uh, the March on Washington, okay, about three weeks after the March on Washington. Uh, on September 15th, 1963, let's pull this up here. On September 15th, 1963, uh, a bomb explodes during Sunday morning services in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, killing uh, four young girls, Eddie Mae Collins, who was 14, Cynthia Wesley, 14, Carol, Carol Robertson, uh, 14, and uh, Carol Denise McNair, who was 11. When, uh, with its large African-American congregation, the 16th Street Baptist Church served as a meeting place for civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., who once called Birmingham a symbol of hardcore resistance to integration a symbol of hardcore resistance to integration and we know it's going to be reverend fred shuttlesworth who calls dr king in 63 to come and help african-americans in uh birmingham alabama in what's known as the birmingham campaign to break the back of segregation in alabama okay so contrary to proper belief in how a lot of the a lot of the history is is mistold. Uh, there, Dr. King wasn't lead, leading everything in the civil rights movement. There were people in their own cities working to end segregation, fight for equal rights, all that in their own communities. Okay, either with or with help, without the help of Dr. King. And Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth calls Dr. King, and they and they interview Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth for uh, Eyes on the Prize. And he talked about how he told Dr. King, if you come to, uh, if you help us in uh, Birmingham, we can guarantee you a victory, okay? Because there was a dispute over, uh, and there, there, there was a, um, some people were losing faith in nonviolent direct resistance, okay? The Albany campaign in Albany, Georgia was a failure. 
And Dr. King was looking for a win to prove that nonviolent direct resistance, along with economic boycotts and things like this, because they had that in Birmingham also, along with the mass protests, economic boycotts, et cetera, that it was still an effective tool. All right. And uh, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth tells him, if you come to uh, Birmingham, I can guarantee you a win. And this is what happens. Okay, so uh, let's look at this here. Okay, let's continue. So Dr. King uh, called Birmingham a symbol of hardcore resistance to integration. Alabama governor, uh, Alabama's governor, George Wallace, famous segregationist George Wallace, made preserving racial segregation one of the central goals of his administration. And Birmingham had one of the uh, most violent and lawless chapters of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, the church bombing was the third in Birmingham in 11 days. The church bomb bombing on September 15, 1963, was the third in Birmingham in 11 days after a federal order came down to integrate Alabama's school system. 15 sticks of dynamite were planted in the church basement underneath what turned out to be the girls' restroom. Now, the bomb detonated at 1019 uh, a.m. Oops, okay, let me bring this back up here. Okay, the bomb detonated at 1019 a.m., uh, killing uh, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson and Addie Mae Collins, all 14 years old and 11 year old Denise McNair. Immediately after the blast, church members wandered, dazed and bloodied, covered with white powder and broken stained glass before starting to dig in the rubble to search for survivors. More than 20 other members of the congregation were injured in the blast. Now, when thousands of African protesters assembled at the crime scene, Governor George Wallace sent hundreds of police and state troopers to the area to break up the crowd. Two African-American men were killed that night, uh, one by police, another by a white supremacist, domestic terrorist, racist thugs. Meanwhile, public outrage over the bombing continued to grow, drawing international attention to Birmingham, Alabama. At a funeral for three of the girls, one's family uh, preferred a separate private service. Dr. King addressed more than 8,000 mourners. A well-known Klan, uh, Klan's member, Robert Chambliss, was charged with the murder and with buying 122 sticks of dynamite. Not sure what he was going to do with that. Did they have a big sale? They have a big going out of business sale? All this dynamite has to go. We don't know what to do with all this dynamite. Did they have a big sale? What was it? You know, was it called a dynamite sale? Was it a hundred? He he was charged with buying 122 sticks of dynamite. In October 1963, Robert Chambliss was cleared of the murder charge and received a six-month jail sentence and a hundred-dollar fine for the dynamite. Although a subsequent FBI investigation identified three other men, Bobby Frank Cherry, Herman Cash, and Thomas E. Blanton Jr. as having helped uh, Robert Chambliss commit the crime, it was later revealed uh, that FBI uh, Chairman J. Edgar Hoover 
blocked the prosecution and shut down the investigation without filing charges in 1968. After Alabama Attorney General Bill Baxley reopened the case, Robert Chambliss was convicted in 1977 and sentenced to life in prison. Gotta go, gotta go. Okay, he sentenced to life in prison eight, uh, nine years after he murdered these four little girls. Now, efforts to prosecute the other three men believe responsible for the bombing continued for decades. Though Cash died in 1994, okay, um, Herman Cash, though Cash died in 1994, uh, Cherry and Blanton were arrested and charged with four counts of murder in the year 2000. Blanton was uh, convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Cherry's trial was delayed after judges ruled he was mentally incompetent to stand trial. I, I guess just white supremacy just took his mind or something. Because just, you know, white supremacy, he's just so crazy, crazy white supremacy, can't stand trial. See, my thing is don't do the crime if you can't do the time. All right. I don't personally, you, you know, you too crazy, all this stuff. I don't, don't want to hear that. I don't think you were crazy. I think you knew what you were doing when you uh, were involved in this. I don't, I don't want to hear all that stuff. The, the decision was later reversed. On May 22nd, 2002, uh, Cherry was convicted and sentenced to life, bringing a long-awaited victory to uh, the friends and families of the four victims, okay? Um, let, me, uh, let me pull this up here. It was, um, okay, so this uh, talks about the uh, 16th Street uh, Baptist Church bombing, September 15, 1963. And let me pull something up here, because... Um, it was... Um, It was the senator who became senator from Alabama who prosecuted him. Uh, let me pull this up here in a second. I'm sorry, this. It was. Um, Senate when, when he was a U.S. attorney. I talked to him on uh, Roland Martin, the filter. He lost his reelection uh, campaign. And let me see here. He lost his reelection campaign. Let me pull this up. Doug Jones, Senator Doug Jones uh, of Alabama uh, was the one who prosecuted, uh, did the prosecution in 2002 of, um, of Frank Cherry. Let me pull up some information on that. Hold on just a second here. Computer's running a little slowly.
Okay, there's a piece here from uh, history.com that deals with this for the sake of um, that's the first one that comes up here. Okay, how Doug Jones brought KKK church bombers to justice. Uh, August 31st, 2018, how Doug Jones brought KKK church bombers to justice. Uh, Jones helped evict two men nearly 40 years after their crimes. In a special election on December 12, 2017, Alabama chose Democrat Doug Jones over Republican and alleged sexual predator uh, Roy Moore. Now, that wasn't a hard decision. Roy Moore. Um, he had like little girls, Roy Moore. Uh, Jones uh, will now head to the U.S. Senate, bringing to a close an election that drew national and international attention. Unusual for a state election, but even more for uh, so forth for Alabama. Much of the media attention on Jones, the first Democrat elected in the state in a quarter century, focused on his role in prosecuting Ku Klux Klan members who planted a bomb that killed four girls at the at a black church. The terrorist attack occurred on September 15, 1963. Okay. Um, here's a picture of, of four little girls also. Okay. Now, um, let's see here. Where is that? Let me go back to this article. Okay. Uh, according to uh, Glenn D. Brasher, a history professor at the University of Alabama, the FBI determined that four KKK members had planted the bomb. FBI agents led by uh, uh, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover knew the attackers' names and had made secret recordings to prove it. However, the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover, uh, quote, quote, the FBI under Hoover sealed those files away because J. Edgar J. Edgar was not exactly a proponent of the civil rights movement, end quote, uh, Brasher says. That's an understatement. By doing this, Hoover ensured that a court could not use them as evidence to prosecute the attackers, making it more difficult to convict. All right. Now, um, Chambliss was prosecuted. Uh, so for 14 years after the bombing, none of the men were prosecuted for their crime. The first one to be arrested and convicted was Robert Edward Chambliss, Robert E. Chambliss in 1977, whose trial, whose, whose trial a young Doug Jones attended when he was in law school. Now, Robert Chambliss was, quote, prosecuted largely on circumstantial evidence, Brasher says. The prosecution did not have access to all of the information that the FBI had collected immediately after the attack in the 1960s. Nevertheless, the overwhelming circumstantial evidence uh, led to a conviction. Although Doug Jones was only a boy himself, when the bombing happened, the government did not release the FBI's evidence against these men for decades. By the time the, uh, by the time the government finally declassified the files. Doug Jones had been appointed as U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama by President Bill Clinton and was able to prosecute the case and was able to prosecute the case. Because presidents also appoint U.S. attorneys as well. 
the 99 U.S. attorneys. Presidents also appoint U.S. attorneys. Now, this was in the late 1990s, and one of the attacks, Herman Frank, one of the attackers, Herman Frank Cash, had already died. But the two men who were still alive, and uh, Doug Jones, real, but but two of the men were still alive, and Doug Jones realized that he had the chance to continue the work of that trial from over 20 years ago. Using the newly, released, newly revealed evidence, U.S. Attorney Doug Jones successfully prosecuted two more of the attackers that the FBI had identified, Thomas Edwin Blanton Jr., convicted in 2001, and Bobby Frank Cherry, convicted in 2002. According to Sharon A. Green, a professor of history at the University of Alabama, Doug Jones, U.S. Attorney Doug Jones' victory is particularly significant given the state's racial politics. Doug Jones, a man who made his name prosecuting the KKK, beat an opponent who, when asked when America was last great, replied, I think it was great at the time when families were united, even though we had slavery. He's talking about Roy Jones. That's what Roy Jones said. Now, uh, people knew how enormous the results, the outcomes of yesterday's election would be for Alabama. This is back in August 2018. Uh, Green says, you had folks who probably wanted to vote for a Republican, but instead voted for someone who was better aligned with some of their values. Okay, so read this piece here from history.com. The, the other articles is one from the Washington Post. It talks about Doug Jones prosecuting um, the Ku Klux Klan, the, the, the uh, two uh, men with the KKK involved in the 16th Street Baptist uh, church bombing. Read this article, How Doug Jones Brought KKK Church Bombers to Justice from History.com. All right. Okay. Now, uh, I want to squeeze this in here. We'll talk about this some more tomorrow. This is dealing with uh, update in the R. Kelly trial. And uh, let's see here. There's some, uh, this information dealt with COVID and children. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Also, Associated Press has this piece, COVID-19 cases climbing, wiping out months of progress. Uh, we'll talk about this on tomorrow's show. So th there was a, um, we didn't talk about R. Kelly yesterday. And there was a couple stories dealing with, uh, there were a couple stories, one I saw from USA Today and another one from um, ABC News. Uh, prosecutors say tapes capture uh, R. Kelly threatening accusers, okay? Prosecutors say tapes capture R. Kelly threatening accusers. So, uh, so this was one piece from uh, September 14th from uh, USA Today. I want to look at this article here from, uh, this is from Yahoo News. This is from September 15th. This, will talk, this talks about what happened in uh, trial. 
and let's pull this up here. Okay, all right. So, Yahoo News picked this up from Madam Noor. Let's look at this one. Uh, okay. If you lie to me, I'm going to F you up. If you, if you lie to me, I'm going to F you up. Prosecutors play shocking audio of R. Kelly threatening victims. Prosecutors play shocking audio of R. Kelly threatening victims. So on September 14th, the courtroom was rocked again by yet another startling accusation against R&B icon R. Kelly, this time in the form of a shocking audio clip. The presiding judge gave prosecutors the green light to play audio recordings that show the star's violent nature and threats. According to the Daily Mail, in one clip, R. Kelly could be heard uh, yelling at a woman uh, who he will uh, yelling at a woman uh, that he will F her up if she lies to him before he begins to actually assault her. Um, in a second recording, let's look at this here. Let's blow this up some. Okay, in a second recording, uh, R. Kelly could be allegedly heard threatening another victim who is reportedly from Florida for stealing a Rolex watch of his, for stealing a Rolex watch of his. And let's go and pull up this graphic here. All right, let's see here, just a second. Okay. So, uh, according to the recording, R. Kelly allegedly said, "You better not ever take from me again, or I will be in Florida, and some and something will happen to you." Uh, R. Kelly allegedly said in the audio recording to the report. Uh, now, court documents uh, state the audio of the disgraced singer is from incidents that occurred back in 2008. Prosecutors said. Uh, they attempted to call the Florida Jane Doe, the, the woman, the Florida uh, Jane Doe, to testify against R. Kelly, but decided against it after she experienced an emotional breakdown while listening to the triggering tape. Now, court filings from the victim's attorneys note that the Chicago native R. Kelly bragged about having, quote unquote, cameras everywhere throughout his studio in the uh, city and in other locations to keep a close eye on his victims. Now, prosecutors request uh, to play the shocking recordings came, the, the prosecutor's request to play the shocking recordings came a day after one R. Kelly uh, background dancer, uh, Jane Doe number 10, identified as Angela, 
took to the stand and testified that she walked in on R. Kelly performing oral sex on Aaliyah in 1993. We talked about this on the show Monday. I think it was Monday. Now, uh, which would have been the 13th. Now, Angela testified that she also had sex with R. Kelly when she was just 14 or 15 years old. Okay. Um, I want to go to, we're going to try to pull up this clip here from the Black News Channel also dealing with this coverage. Now, let's see, while we pull this up here, okay, just a second. Everybody share this broadcasting on social media platforms. Invite your friends to tune in as well also. Follow us on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Okay, just give me a second. I'm going to try to pull this up. Now, um, Angela testified, uh, quote, he asked me to climb on top of him. Angela said on September 13th in court, adding that there were three other young women in various states of undress in the room with me. Quote, I paused for a moment. I was a little startled in quote. She added. All right. Now we know R Kelly has denied all charges. Okay. Um, Let's see here. Let's go to this here. Let's try to pull this up. Okay, I want to pull up this clip here from um, the Black News Channel dealing with uh, an update on the trial because we skipped this yesterday. Okay, let's look at this here. Let's go to this from uh, making the case with uh, Yadit Tawode. Just a second here. Let's go to this. Good evening. I'm Yadit Tawode, and this is Making the Case. We're closing in on one full month since R. Kelly's racketeering and sex, sex trafficking trial began. After weeks of testimony by more than 10 alleged victims, a jury spent today watching footage and listening to audio tapes introduced into evidence by the prosecution. Press and members of the public could neither see nor hear the tapes or the jury's reaction to them playing. Here are today's developments from Brooklyn. Part of the evidence that was recovered from R. Kelly's home and a storage unit he owned uh, included iPads and videos that prosecutors maintain provide both audio and visual proof of how physically and verbally abusive he was towards his girlfriends. And some of those girlfriends have testified about that alleged abuse at trial. The federal courtroom where singer R. Kelly is being tried for sex trafficking and racketeering was relatively quiet today. Not because there was nothing happening, but rather because there was a lot for the jury to see and hear. Audio and video recordings were played in court, at least two of them dating back to 2008. Only members of the jury, the attorneys, and the lead investigator who helped find the recordings at Kelly's home in Chicago and the storage unit were allowed to watch and listen. So we can't say exactly what the jury saw or heard. But we do know some of the recordings are graphic and sexually explicit. And R. Kelly is seen in some of the videos, along with at least two of his accusers, who testified Kelly recorded them in various sexually related scenarios. There's also a recording in which prosecutors say you can hear Kelly 
berating and threatening one of his accusers after he believed she stole from him. Prosecutors say the recordings illustrate the type of physical and psychological abuse Kelly used to exert and maintain control over the women and girls he was engaged in sexual relationships with. Multiple female and male accusers testified that Kelly was controlling, abusive, and sexually aroused by subjecting his girlfriends to doing humiliating things, like having sex with his friends in front of him. And sometimes he would do it as a form of punishment when they disobeyed his orders. Kelly denies all claims against him and has pleaded not guilty. Prosecutors had planned to call a woman they identified as Jane Doe 20 to testify, but they say that she had an anxiety attack and broke down crying after hearing some of the recordings. So they decided it would be best to not have her testify because it was too emotionally difficult. Meanwhile, it's expected prosecutors will wrap up their case by the end of the week, and R. Kelly's defense team may be presenting his case before the jury as early as Monday. Meanwhile, court is in recess until Friday morning. In New York, I'm Dre Clark for Making the Case. The prosecution's case is winding down, and the defense should be plotting a strategy as they expect to start their case in chief sometime next week. All right, joining us tonight to offer insight into this trial uh, is civil rights lawyer and president of the Illinois Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, Tony Thetford. Uh, Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, so you have a unique perspective here because you practice in Chicago and you worked closely with the um, attorneys who represented R. Kelly in his 2008 trial. Uh, what's it like watching this all unfold again? <laughs> Deja vu all over again. Um, the charges uh, that uh, Mr. Kelly is defending at this point far outweigh the nature of the charges here in 2008 that were tried. Uh, I worked along with an attorney, Sam Adam Jr., who was the uh, principal attorney on that case. I was not involved in defense of uh, Mr. Kelly back in 2008, to be clear. Uh, but you know, the, the, the fury that surrounded that, the excitement that surrounded that, it was a trial of the year here in, in uh, Chicago. And to be in this position again, where not only are we there, but frankly, 10 times in terms of the uh, media focus and the potential consequences to uh, Mr. Kelly. So uh, it is, uh, it, it's, it's not a good place to be in again, I, I guess I would say in terms of uh, reliving a lot of the, the, the trauma from our standpoint for a case that was uh, so uh, difficult to defend and deal with. Uh, on the other hand, uh, one of the things that's interesting is that I believed that we would never see this again. I believed that when Mr. Kelly was successful in his first case, that that would have been, at least for him, warning enough to uh, never you know, fool around in those areas again to put himself in that position. But unfortunately, uh, here he is. Absolutely. Um, well, we'll talk about today's events in court. Uh, in a moment. But first, I'd like to get your take on um, the prosecution's case in chief and the defense's efforts to discredit Kelly's accusers. I mean, we're nearly one month into this trial. So um, what's your assessment on how both sides are doing? 
Well, I think it's very difficult for the defense. Uh, the prosecution has, uh, you know, and you're an attorney, so you know what I mean, has everything in this case in terms of uh, yeah. the, the bulk of the case, the number of witnesses, emotions on their side. You have a defendant who is infamous. Um, it would be difficult uh, to impanel a jury that had never heard of uh, Robert Kelly or uh, had not heard in some part about the prior prosecution and what his reputation has been for the last 20 years, essentially. Uh, so it's very, very difficult for the defense uh, to mount what I believe would be a strong defense with the ability to refute each one of the allegations or to challenge each one of the witnesses uh, who's testified in this case. I know that there's more to come. Uh, I know that there was a, one of the witnesses chose not to testify today because she was emotionally overcome. Uh, but I imagine that they will call that witness probably Friday since they're uh, down until then. So uh, it's a very difficult case for the defense. Um, with very limited, frankly, defenses uh, to a case like this, with this number of allegations and this number of witnesses uh, over such a large period of time, just extremely difficult. Now, the prosecution was expected to wrap its case on Monday, but they're still presenting evidence. Jurors were originally told that this entire trial would take about a month. Uh, what impact could a longer uh, trial have on jurors and to both sides? Well, you know, as a defense attorney, uh, it is uh, difficult when a prediction about the length of a trial is made. Uh, sometimes we fear as defense lawyers that any extension of that trial is held against the defendant. And sometimes I'm sure that could be the case. Um, I, I think that reasonably, though, uh, the trials that we've been conducting, and I say we and the uh, you know, criminal justice community have conducted since uh, the beginning of the pandemic, have been limited. They've been slower because of uh, you know COVID protections. Uh, they've been mm -hmm. disjointed in a way because how we have to set up courtrooms now in order to uh, attempt to socially distance uh, people. So I think that the court's prediction about how long it will take is a bit unfair uh, in that there are these other factors that don't typically happen uh, in a uh, trial uh, that extend the case. Uh, but, you know, time is not on the, decide, uh, on the side of uh, R. Kelly and his defense team in that the longer this case goes on, as you indicated, the worse it seems to get because of the accumulation of sympathetic witnesses and the descriptions of these things that they claim happened to them and the, and the kind of vivid detail that they've given to substantiate that. And now today, you know, we have videos uh, and, and audio mm -hmm. tapes that sort of bolster or support, again, uh, many of those claims. Well, uh, Tony, speaking of video and audio, um, after weeks of emotional testimony today, jurors heard from Kelly by way of that audio and video. They heard Kelly allegedly berating and threatening one of his accusers after claiming she stole from him. Talk about the significant impact of video and audio for a jury. Well, uh, the defense has the option of not calling R. Kelly to testify in this case. Um, my guess is that he would not testify. Uh, in light of that, um, it's, it's almost uh, on some level unfair because it's a trial strategy. Often when you want to keep your client off the stand or the, or the defendant does not choose to testify. But hearing his words unattached to uh, his face 
as it were, mm-hmm. is actually creepy uh, on some level, especially when you've had a trial that essentially has the substance of this case. Uh, so I, I don't think that it's good, first of all, to even hear his voice. Second of all, it's framed in this limited sort of uh, look, I told you he was a mean guy sort of thing, where they're only playing snippets of what he might have said or what he did say, of course, uh, in those circumstances where he's being recorded. So it's, um, as a defense attorney, I would certainly argue that those statements may or may not have been taken out of context and then try to frame the context in which those statements were made. However, that is difficult to do unless you put R. Kelly on the witness stand. And so there there kind of been a... uh, Cash 22, frankly, where they may be forced to call him to refute what we've heard in those video and audio. Uh, so it's going to be interesting as to how they intend to proceed with that really salacious uh, evidence coming in today. All right. We're going to pause it there. We'll share the rest of this uh, clip uh, on tomorrow's show. This was uh, from Making the Case with Yodita Walday, Black News Channel, September 15, 2021. R. Kelly trial revealed graphic and sexually explicit recordings today. Uh, the defense attorney that you heard her talk to, uh, Tony Thetford, uh, T-H-E-D-F-O-R-D, civil rights lawyer and president of the Illinois Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Okay, uh, before we get out of here very quickly, check out the website of, um, the official website of World Afro Day. It's worldafroday.com, worldafroday.com. And let me pull this up here. We talked about World Afro Day earlier in the show. And Michelle uh, DeLeon, founder of World Afro Day, uh, they have a statement around the homepage of the website. It says World Afro Day is a global day of change education and celebration of Afro hair. Endorsed by the UN Office of of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, we work with families, schools, and authorities to tackle discrimination against against Afro hair. We carry out research, create events, and produce resources to empower people with Afro hair and raise awareness in wider society, raise awareness in wider society. Okay. And that is from Michelle DeLeon, founder of World Afro Day. So you can visit their website, worldafroday.com. You have a lot of information there, worldafroday.com. Once again, September 15th is uh, World Afro Day. Well, uh, September uh, 15th. And let me see something here. Uh, let me see if they have a, a statement about uh, latest news article. See what they have on here. Uh, it's 2020, 2021. Um, okay. On the home page of the website, they should have the date of World Afro Day. Um, the moment came on the 15th, September 2016. Okay. 
All right. So check this out. September 15, 2016, World Afro Day. All right, we have to get out of here. Uh, if you'd like to type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me, forward slash the AHN Show, paypal.me, forward slash the AHN Show. If you do it through Cash App, this is our official Cash App account, dollar sign the ahn show s-h-o-w uh and when you go to it it'll, it'll show my picture there and uh, it'll say michael uh this is our official cash app tag dollar sign the ahn show these other ones are fake african history network cash app accounts that's not me all right uh remember right now is correct wrong behavior is not over till we win wakanda forever and uh register for the uh 10-week online course i teach on saturdays from the civil war to the civil rights movement 1865-1968. Right now, it's correct your own behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV, the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30 plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network, subscribe now. We all know the cannabis industry is headed toward an uprise in the past decade. What happens when there is a brand that brings this uprise in a blow? The cannabis industry welcomes her uprise. Hustle Her Hemp. Delivering excellence with pride is her watchword, and how you choose to embrace it makes it a priority. From cultivating rich cannabis into exquisite and tastefully finished CBD products to delivery, Hustle Her Hemp leaves no stone unturned. Hustle Her Hemp's mission is to empower women of color by building business and creating legacies, uniting beauty, health, and business. We are a pure definition of how we want the CBD industry to become in the future. While we are redefining innovation, we bring the same energy to improving the quality of life. Hustle Her Hemp is the new Uprise. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that'll satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. Start your free trial today. Hi. I'm Joel Wilson, President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting, LLC, a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services. We are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365, and Surface tablets, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. 
businesses. Take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701.